since 1971. The Freaks, Michigan State University students and other Lansing people, beat the Pigs 12-7 in the second annual Bull Bowl game yesterday, but now have a 2-0 record against the Pigs, who include officers from the state police. The game drew 15,000 persons to Spartan Stadium, netted about $20,000 for children stricken with leukemia. The home of rock and roll throughout the 70s and into the 80s. Look at this. More customers. I tell you, without WRIF, Detroit's only real rock and roll radio station, I'd go nuts. Now look at the car I gotta fix. What is it, the only car? Dogs chase it and catch it. Oh, Riff, with the work I do, I need you. Detroit's only real rock and roll radio station in the decade of the 90s. With your shot at a Washburn guitar and many other Riff freebies, it's another party exclusive from Hayloft West and WRIF. For nearly 50 years, we are, have been, and continue to be 101 WRIF. WRIF 101 FM is Detroit's best like you've never heard it before. Welcome to the podcast, The History of WRIF. I am Mike Staff. I had the pleasure of being a, a riff DJ for 14 years from 1992 to 2006. And every, um, every DJ as they're growing up who wants to be a DJ from a kid has a DJ that they listen to, that they think is the coolest DJ, that they'd like to emulate. And I'm here with the guy that I always felt that way about, Steve Costan. Great it's, to see you, Steve. It's, it's great to be here. And you're right, absolutely. All of us have had those guys that uh, kind of pointed the way for us. Who was yours? Uh, probably Dan Carlisle was the most. Uh, he was on WABX. A lot of people remember him from being uh, the uh, voice on Bob Seger's Live Bullet, which uh, he was the MC that night. And he was really key in the early 70s, around 1970 and stuff and beyond when I started really getting into the uh, whole FM side. Because uh, a lot of cars didn't come with uh, FM radios back in your parents' car. You had to get that little FM converter and right. stick it in the glove box. And that was good because it kept you from changing the station a lot, too. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but uh, he was key, and he was really out front on stuff, uh, post-Woodstock stuff as well. But, you know, really the MC5 came up on his show once, and, you know, he was cool then. But then when music started changing a little post-Woodstock, uh, probably Bowie and the Spiders from Mars was the first big bang after Woodstock. And, uh, you know, shortly there after Aerosmith and a lot of those Michigan Palace bands and uh, uh, Dan Carlisle and uh, Mark Perenno and Dennis Frawley over at ABX were probably mine. You grew up in Redford? Well, I was in Detroit. No, okay. and, uh, everyone confuses that a little bit. Um, for instance, the old Redford Theater is uh, you know, in Redford. Redford, that part of Redford was its own town until the 1920s and then it got incorporated into the city of Detroit. Okay. And then Redford Township is separate. That's further out. But uh, basically, uh, so I went to uh, Redford High School in Detroit, Detroit Redford. It was part of the Detroit public school system. And there was something in the water uh, at Detroit Redford High School because there's a lot of people that went to that. Well, the famous one is uh, Ted, of course. Ted Nugent. Uh, The Nugent went there for a while. Uh, from the mean streets of Detroit, which was actually uh, North Rosedale Park, very deluxe, uh, kind of a little <laughs> mini gross point of that side of uh, town. And uh, George C. Scott as well. But, yeah. uh, you know, that was, I was in high school when the movie Patton came out, so all the teachers were like, yeah, you know, he actually went here and stuff like that. So there was a little bragging rights going on because that was a big movie when it came mm. out and I happened to be at the right place. And there's a couple of other uh, rock DJs, John O'Leary and, and Chuck, Chuck Santoni. Yeah. yeah, that's crazy. John, o- John is a year younger, Chuck's a year older. Yeah. When did you know you wanted to be in radio, Steve? Shoot, really not until about 73, 74. How old were you? 
I was 20. Okay. So you went, you graduated <laughs> high school, you went to college, you went to Western? Yeah, I was just screwing around, uh, actually, uh, at Lawrence Tech for, uh, a couple of years, uh, keeping my parents happy. But the, uh, the way that the, the whole uh, radio thing kind of occurred, um, was, uh, Bowie was coming to town, and uh, he was still really new. It was 73. Uh, just Ziggy album was the big deal. There was two shows at Masonic, uh, March 1st and 2nd of that year. And back in those days, you had to camp out for the tickets. So I'm going down there in January, and I'm going to go down in the middle of the night and camp out, and it's freezing in January. But I had known Dan Carlisle a little bit. I'd talked to him on the phone, and uh, and he said, basically, uh, Mel, you're going for these Bowie tickets. Tell you what, if it gets uh, too cold there and you want to take a break, uh, you can come by the radio station for a while because uh, I'm on, you know, and you can hang out, get warm and for an hour and come back. And you ever been to the station? I said, no. So uh, we did that. And uh, got to go up on the 33rd floor of the old David Stott building. And, you know, the guy downstairs, you kind of call and come up. So um, when I got up there and, uh, you know, we we're playing different songs and, you know, kind of having a good time while we were uh, listening to the music late, you know, in the middle of the night. Uh, they did have a window that opened right in the uh, air studio uh, for uh, increased ventilation, which sometimes was necessary at that station. <laughs> I'm not really sure why, but uh, it appeared to be a lot easier than it was and i was like hey maybe i could do that because i knew a lot about the music mm -hmm. but i hadn't i wasn't one of those guys that wanted to be a radio uh, cat when i was like 14 years old or anything interesting because it was kind of like in the am days and you know i had my favorite djs on keener scott regan you know the whole beatles thing but uh it you know then i started thinking yeah maybe i can do this and uh, about Two and a half years later, I did something about it. I wasted a couple more uh, years, and then I decided to, uh, you know, try and get on the radio. And uh, Oakland Community College uh, had a college station. And Carlisle said, basically, just go through the college route, because Spex Howard was brand new then. Okay. And it didn't have a track record of, of producing guys and, and people that, you know, had been placed and were famous yet, because it was only about a year and a half old. Okay. And uh, $1,300, man, that's like twice as much as I paid for my car. Right. You know, so uh, <laughs> so I went that route instead, because it was probably, uh, you know, less serious, easier, easiest path of resistance. Right. But it was a good time, because OCC was just about to get their license to go on the actual airways. It was before we just rocked the cafeteria, it was called the Rathskeller, you know. But uh, you know, you got to run the board upstairs. You don't know where it's going. It's it's pretty much that same studio you're doing experience. The same thing, sure. You know, you're in that little room by yourself, and uh, you're trying to make some magic. You know. So you, you, did you uh, get a degree or? Uh, well, I, got, I graduated from OCC with a, a community college, a two-year degree in liberal arts. Okay. That's just, I mean, I, that's the path of least resistance. Right. They didn't really have a broadcasting curriculum. And then I went up to uh, Western, where they did, and uh, took a couple of classes up there, learned how to edit tape and, and do some stuff. But the main idea was to get on their radio station at Western because they had a real signal. Mm -hmm. So you could get it in your car, you could get it in these houses and all this. I mean, it was you know covering Kalamazoo. It was real. So yeah. that was cool. It was real radio. And uh, so I did that and uh, with the object uh, of just... I'm just going to come up here as long as it takes to get a, a decent tape and get a job and, and, and go back to Detroit. And what was your first job in Detroit? At ABX. 
as a part-timer. Yeah, we don't screw around. We go right for the... That's, a, that's amazing. <laughs> that, doesn't, that doesn't happen very <laughs> often. It's, you know, there was a, there was a near miss at a, at a country station. My aunt knew somebody at WSDS in uh, Ypsilanti, but uh, that didn't happen. That could have been a completely different career path. So was it Calvert that yeah. hired you? Yeah, Ken Calvert hired me, and uh, it was for uh, Labor Day of uh, 1977 because the weekend jock, uh, one of them, uh, Mike Mayer, who you know, mm-hmm. uh, he wanted the weekend off for Labor Day. I mean, that, you know, talk about a work ethic. Right, right. But uh, So <laughs> that, that turned Day. out to be a good thing for me. And he said, I can use you this weekend, but I don't have anything permanent. But uh, after I did that weekend, a couple of shifts, he said, uh, you know, the morning news guy does an overnight shift on Saturday. His name was Steve Monkevich. It's really screwing up his sleep schedule. Do you want that overnight shift on Saturday? You know, come in at 1 in the morning. I said, yeah, sure. Heck yeah. So I started there and, and just, you know, worked at uh, whatever was available. I try and do that. And I kind of did that at Western, too. I took a lot of the overnight ones because these people were, like, you know, really concerned about their classes and stuff. Mm. And uh, <laughs> I so I was doing all this radio. I started missing a bunch of classes. I got put on academic probation and and asked to uh, not attend classes for the winter semester, which was great, but I was still enrolled, so then I just took as much radio as I could, right? because it was like, I don't care about this. Uh, there were some guys that had degrees, and were still on the college station, and they were working at the record store, and they were like three or four years older than me, and that was definitely not where I was headed. Right. I was a little older than everybody else, too, so I was a little more serious. Mm-hmm. You know, When you're 18, you're kind of goofing off, even... If you get to like 21 years old or something, I mean, you start getting a little more focus, and uh, I got to make something out of this. How early. long were you at ABX before you got a full? T- or did you get a full time gig on ABX? Not at first. No, I was there about 19 months, and they had a bunch of legends. They had uh, Dennis Frawley, they had Karen Savelli, they had Jerry Lubin, and uh, you know, so they were really stocked with, with a really uh, talent rich pool of disc jockeys, and. You know, it wasn't moving. You know, something's got to move. There's only a couple of slots. It's like a basketball team, right? You know, only about maybe five shifts. And uh, so, basically, I uh, decided to try and uh, go for W four because they had uh, guys that we hadn't really heard of that much at that point. It was not really, uh, you know, compared to ABX, they didn't really have any huge stars in. Because a- ABX was like, the, it was the first rock radio yeah. station, free form underground. It was super new, super mm-hmm. cool FM. Right? Yeah, it, it was pioneering this new form of radio. And W4 was doing fine, and they had some people come in and out. Carlisle went in and out. I think Calvert and Savelli was there for a while. She was over at ABX by the time I got there. And so it was hard being behind those people. Yeah, right. And, uh, and it was much easier to go, like, nobody knew who Mark McEwen was or uh, really Sky or even Podell. You know, it was kind of, uh, you know, Rick Waldecker, the legend. Uh, you know, I mean, good jocks and stuff, but just not the heavy hitters like these guys that I was behind. So I just went over there because I figured I could uh, move up quicker, and it worked. What uh, what years were you at W4? Just, just 79. I got okay. there in January of 79. I took the overnight shift, uh, and about... Maybe about eight weeks later, Sky Daniels uh, left and went to Chicago, and all of a sudden that six to ten slot opened up. And back in '79, that was rocking time, yeah, baby. That right. was the best time to be on radio back then. You know, sure. it was pre- people didn't have cable TV yet. We were all younger. Radio was really king, and uh, so that was a great shift to be on. Right. Well, uh, describe the music scene at that time. It was really cool because it was kind of getting exciting again. It. Uh, Got a little strange around 77, 76. Some of that softer rock stuff started coming out. Some of the uh, 
early baby boomers were turning 30 and and Steely Dan and Boss Skaggs and the Michael McDonald Doobie Brothers, not the Harley Doobie Brothers that we grew up on right. with uh, Johnston. And so to me, it, it sounded kind of wimpy, you know, but at the same time, you had uh, uh, Double Live Gonzo was one of the biggest albums of the year. And that was that sounded like a battlefield bombs going off every two seconds on that album. And I was more into that stuff uh, just growing up on the MC5 Stooges. Right. Uh, and, uh, you know, Alice and, uh, and and the Dukes, Amboy Dukes, you know. So um, it was getting kind of frustrating in that aspect. But then the uh, the shot that was needed kind of came in uh, with a lot of the wave bands, you know, like New Wave, uh, you know, they call it punk, whatever. You know, The Knack had the first really big album, but there was other band. The Cars had broken uh, late in 78, and then a, a whole just army of those bands just started coming out and uh it was uh really exciting in that aspect because the, it was really a time for musical change and and just by dumb luck i wasn't really well known uh before that and then all of a sudden i'm in this slot so it's easy to that that's a situation where the past kind of maybe even holds you back a little bit and hey man here's this new thing on the scene and here's the guy that's doing it so that that was just pure luck but uh i liked it because it was just more straight it brought the fun back to the rock and roll instead of you know like the steely dan and the long jams and stuff was great but uh you know back in those days uh i was pretty much impoverished like most people are in the early 20s i couldn't sure. even lay my hands on that much weed you know and i couldn't afford a beanbag chair for crying out loud so uh it was a great time it was really a lot of fun things were changing yeah. and uh, and radio was fun you had kind of control over what you were playing at the well time. everybody did uh much more in those days there were still formats and and there was bands in, in there but you could really shape your show they had uh these different categories of uh of songs but then in each category there was a card file and you could flip through like maybe 20 songs I'm going to play this one. Then you could actually see, okay, what would be good after that? How do you actually put a set together? You know, yeah. it's not like just random, uh, you know, your show on shuffle. Right. You know, there was some uh, rhyme and reason to doing that. and uh, It was a creative process. Yeah, and you could actually, you know, if you put together good sets, you kept the listeners longer, you got better ratings. And, uh, and I was just always raised on that FM radio where we were trying to do that all the time anyways. Right. You know, it's, it's really not happening much nowadays. Expect on maybe satellite or some specialty shows, but right. you know, there would actually stuff that would actually fit together more than just you know, a collection of the hits. Let's just you know, swim up in the air and see what happens. Yeah. It, it doesn't necessarily work well when you do it that way, for sure. Even so, though they're all really strong songs, they just uh, don't say you know you don't you don't put a Cadillac Fender on a Mustang. Coming up. So talk about Calvert. This guy, he, does he relate to his audience or what? Oh yeah, he's the uh, he's everybody's uh, like you know favorite frat boy uh, on the radio. I mean, uh, you know, you can kind of hear the penny loafers. Uh, you know, <laughs> what he did when he does this stuff, he was a perfect guy for middays. And, mm-hmm. and then he had that uh, uh, alternate personality, Chuck Roast, and All he right. did the uh, oldies on uh, on Sunday mornings on the Electric Brunch, and, right. and that was a good. And he could probably still dust that character off and make some hay with it now you know playing some you. of that stuff because people have kind of moved away from it and when everybody moves away it creates an opportunity uh-huh. yeah right you know just like uh what happened in the, during prohibition right. you know i mean the same thing every everything that's ruined it's a business opportunity Live from the city that believes speed limits are mere suggestions, it's Afternoons on 101 WRIF Detroit. 
Legendary personalities from Detroit's iconic WRIF. This is the home of rock and roll. Go ahead, t- tell me more. With Mike Staff and our special guest, Steve Costan. How did you uh, get to riff? Tell me about that. Um, that was kind of interesting. Uh, I had gone back to ABX and I was their music director. Mm. And um, what happened was Riff tried to get me out of town. This was a classic uh, ABC thing. Uh, they tried to hire me at their station in uh, New York called uh, WPLJ. Mm, big station. Yeah, in New York. big station, big market, wow. big apple. You know, big, big, and big. But uh, my dad had uh, lived in New York City for a while when he was really young, and he just—I told him the amount of money they had offered me, which seemed like a lot, fifty grand back in 1980. But he goes, "You just wonder where that money went." He goes, "Taxes are so high, you have to pay to park your car." You know, and so he kind of scared me out of it. And then when I met with the program director, uh, Larry Berger, I think was the guy's name, at the airport, um, basically the rock scene was not nearly as big as Detroit. You know, they said the rock stations aren't even, like, dominant like they are in Detroit. Because, you know, New York City's got all this other stuff. They got Broadway. They got this. They got that. You know, uh, um, see, back then, even John Lennon was still walking around the streets. I mean, when you have that level of, of heaviosity with uh, in, in the entertainment biz, DJs uh, aren't, aren't near the top. Sure. You know, but you got a guy like Arthur Pennell, king, you know, right. in the Motor City. Yeah, of course. So uh, I turned the job down. But uh, there was a guy in New York that was doing research for ABC at the time and was aware of this whole thing because he was from Detroit. His name was Fred Jacobs. So Fred knew who I was ahead of time. And the following summer, he was running Riff, and uh, he contacted me, and uh, I moved over to Riff. Fred, I found a great quote that Fred um, had about you. It was... was Extremely cool. He says, I don't ever remember Steve not wanting to do a gig, not wanting to be at an event, or not wanting to go that extra mile to help the station. You can't teach his passion for the music, but all programmers know how valuable it is to have a champion like that on your staff. Well, you know, how cool is it to be able to get to do that stuff? Isn't it? I mean, once in a while, if the, if the schedule gets a little too heavy, you know, you just remind yourself, uh, hey, this is going on. And I got there, and like two weeks later, Mark Pazman uh, came up and said, hey, we got this thing. Uh, I heard you play a little guitar. You know, we're going to do a thing with the Dick the Bruiser band, mm. uh, and it's going to this concert that we're going to put on at Pine Knob at the end of the month, and uh, we're going to do like three songs. You want to play rhythm, so uh, you know, so I'm at ABX, <laughs> and then, you know, in September second or something, I'm at a riff, and, and at the end of September, I'm on stage playing uh, at a packed house at Pine Knob. Yeah, it's awesome. It's <laughs> incredible. You know, how hard is it to get excited about that? <laughs> and that was 1981. One, yeah. And you got hired in to do what shift at Riff? Uh, six to ten at night. Another. That's the that was the premium. I, I was doing afternoons at ABX because I was doing music director at, at that time as well. But I mean, nobody's going to take afternoon drive at Riff uh, back in you know oh, right. forever because there right. was Arthur Penhallow all yeah, the way, yeah, and rightly so, of course. So um, there was such a great rock scene in Detroit in seventies, eighties. Um, all these great bands. When you think about it, from going from the MC Five to Nugent Seeger, Mitch Ryder. The Rationals, Romantics, Adrenaline, Rhythm Core, like all these bands. The Rockets. The Rockets. All of a sudden exploded. Now, that was a great, great moment because 79 was when they really hit it super big. Second album came out, they had O.L. turn up the radio on it. All of a sudden, the Rockets are playing uh, 
find out. They ended up selling it out in August of uh, 79. And Gary Lazar, their manager, had a great idea. He took one jock from each of the three rock stations. And it was O'Leary, Penhollow, and I. And we went up together in a wow. show of unity to, to introduce the, the Rockets. rock band. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, they were selling out uh, Pine Knob, and it actually did sell out. So, um, you know, there was a, you know, a good buzz. And you just got to remember, though, the whole thing is like the baby boomers. I mean, I was, you know, still well. I was in my mid-20s, I think, at that point, maybe 27. And, uh, you know, our generation, unlike our parents' generation, we didn't start having kids right away when we were like 22, 23. I mean, they were just glad to get through the war without getting killed. You know, right, I was like, right. they got we're back. You know, it's all over. Whereas, uh, as far as um, growing up, uh, the baby boomers took their time. Uh, we were in no hurry to get locked into that stuff. So it was a lot more, con- you know, they had kids later in life, mm-hmm. uh, which had a lot to do. I think it had a lot to do with the taste in cars, too, because the late 70s is when uh, Toyota and a bunch of cars came in that, you know, we didn't need the big dad's big Mercury with the huge back seats because we yeah, didn't have kids. kids, you know. And, you know, we would probably be better off uh you know we were more interested in, in, in making them and so you get a little sports car with a seat that reclined or something right. and it, it tended so we kind of uh you know perpetuated that uh you know that youth uh, a little bit longer and um so you know we wanted those kind of cars uh as opposed to uh you know what our parents had because you know we were living a different lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Um, getting back to the Detroit scene at that mm-hmm. time, I don't think there was a city that was humming like Detroit was with a local rock scene, was there? Well, there probably. Don't ask me because I I didn't really live anywhere else. Oh, yeah. But boy, to be here in the epicenter right then, it was great. And another reflection of that is how good the, all the rock clubs were doing back then. You know, because we were in our twenties, and, and like I said, hardly anybody, nobody had kids, so it was kind of just a thing where we went out and saw live bands like. All the time and and those bands unlike today could play those bars and and make a decent living right you know and they play did, originals at the bars yeah yeah what? they do some originals some covers but i mean there was a, a number of clubs and they did you know on tuesdays wednesdays there was each i mean there was there was stuff going on all the time yeah throw out some of the names of some of those clubs well um near me there was uh the west side six uh which became the Silverbird. Kitty Corner, that's a six and telegraph. Kitty Corner was the 24 Carat Club, and uh, there was a Studio Lounge, the Token Lounge in Westland. There was a place called uh, Jimmy John's over on Six Mile. But see, I didn't go to those clubs a ton in the uh, earlier 70s because I had some friends that worked at the Michigan Palace. Mm. And so I could go see these bands, you know, pay a cover charge, and, and the drinks were expensive, you know, because you're always perpetually broke it builds character <laughs> when you're young so you appreciate it when you get older um but you know i could go down and, and see kiss and golden earring and uh, the pretty things and the new york dolls and aerosmith and and, and all those palace bands and you know I went to, like bowie i think i went to like four of those shows when he played there that week because my buddy would just pop me in the side door so that was a great place <laughs> to have the run of you know i mean that was the exciting thing the bands were really coming up michigan palace for uh folks who don't know it's kind of like uh, another one of those old theaters, probably bigger than the Fillmore, a little smaller than the Fox. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when you got hired in at Riff in 81, you were doing nights. Um, Arthur was doing afternoons. Mm-hmm. Who was doing middays? Uh, Calvert. Calvert and then J.J. J.J. and the morning crew, morning Ken crew. Calvert, middays, Arthur, 
Myself, 6 to 10. Karen, 10 to 2 at night. Carol Coffee overnight. Oh, man, that is That all, was the dream team. That is the dream yeah. team. Yeah. Tell me about JJ and the Morning Crew. What was it about that show that Detroit resonated with? Well, it, it kinda, he kind of drafted off of uh, Steve Dahl. Dahl was the guy that came in, and mornings were not that big a deal on FM radio in the early 70s because they were trying to move away. You know, that was the alternative to that AM stuff, man. You know, so, and half of us weren't even up, you know, at 9 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> you know, what the heck? Um, so he drafted off of that. Uh, Dahl became, like, you know, even nationally famous. He went to Chicago, but uh, Johnson was the program director. And so he said, well, I'll just fill in with the uh, character voice guy, George Beyer, the guy who did Dick Bruiser and all that stuff. Until we find somebody, I'll just do this for now. Interesting. The ratings didn't go down when Dahl left. They kind of, like, stayed and built when Johnson was in there. And... Um, he just decided that rather than have the uh, program director, uh, you know, responsibilities and, and those guys get fired a lot too mm-hmm. and stuff, uh, maybe I can make hay as this, uh, morning show talent. And, uh, boy, he did a good job and they I'll were say. just so dominant and they just jumped on the whole, uh, disco demolition thing, uh, from here in Detroit. What that, Steve uh, Dahl was doing in Chicago. Yeah, he started, yeah. you know, Dahl was here. It hadn't really built up too much in Detroit when he was here in town, but it really came to a head when he went to Chicago in 79. And of course, that big uh, demolition, which yeah. happened to be against the Tigers. Oh, really? Yeah, it was a Tiger <laughs> game. Funny, I didn't so know it was that. on TV. Yeah, yeah you could, awesome. you, we, could, we watched it as it was happening because the White Sox played the Tigers that night. <laughs> it's awesome. And, that's a, and the Tigers got a win. Right. Because the, the White Sox had to forfeit. Very uh, similar to the way, the only way we get wins like here in uh, well, not, these days. It's hard to talk about it right now. <laughs> yeah, moving on. So that's how that worked out. <laughs> so talk about Calvert. This guy, he, does he relate to his audience or what? Oh, yeah. He's the. Uh, He's everybody's uh, like you know favorite frat boy uh, on the radio. You know, uh, I've worked with guys who are a little more rock enthusiasts when it comes to the uh, the heavier rock and stuff. But you know, Ken's a little older than I am, and you know, I mean, uh, you know, you can kind of hear the penny loafers. Uh, you know, <laughs> when, he did, when he does his stuff, and he was a perfect guy for middays, mm-hmm. and and then he had that. Uh, uh, alternate personality, Chuck Roast, and he right. did the uh, oldies on uh, on Sunday mornings on the Electric Brunch, and, right. and that was a good. And he could probably still dust that character off and make some hay with it now, you know, playing some you. of that stuff because people have kind of moved away from it. And when everybody moves away, it creates an opportunity. Uh-huh. Yeah, right. You know, just like. Uh, what happened in the, during Prohibition? Right. You know, I mean the same thing. Every everything that's removed, it's a business opportunity. Right. So. How about uh, Arthur P? Talk about Art. Now that was kind of uh, strange because when I first got into radio and stuff, you know, he was the big Kahuna and stuff. But stylistically, he wasn't uh, the guy that I was getting my cues from. But um, you know, I, I mentioned the other guys that I was into. Yeah. You know, he was a little more of a boss jock thing. But when I got to meet the guy, he was. Really great. He's uh, he's got a very gruff exterior, but underneath uh, there's a whole different Arthur. And he really took me under his wing. And the fact that you know he was out kind of staying out late, and I'd get off at ten, he'd be somewhere, maybe the center stage or this or that. So I, uh, you know, being the new guy, he invited me and, and kind of uh, you know, initiated me a little mm. bit. And uh, that an was really key. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Hanging around this guy because he's got about ten years on me, but all this wealth of uh, mm. experience and knowledge. And, and when you're just starting off, it's really cool to hang around with the old guys and just kind of be quiet and, and soak it in. Yeah, soak you know? it in. Yeah, yeah. How about Karen Smelly? 
Well, she was the, the first one on the radio. There were some other women on the radio before, but uh, nothing like uh, the impact that Karen had. And I think, I see, I didn't listen to W4 that much. I think I caught her like once or twice late. She was on late night. This used to be like the poor people's concert. It was basically a concert replay after a big show in town. Oh, yeah. And I remember catching some of that. And uh, by the late 70s, the other uh, women who were on the radio on ABX, I can't remember some of their names, had kind of faded away, but she had kind of stuck around and become, you know, bigger. Mm-hmm. And uh, and she's got a really good feel for uh, rock and roll, too, you know, which is important. Cause yeah. not, not everybody does. I mean, and I have a certain feel for a certain type of rock, and it's it's more harder and more, you know, irrational exuberance that is Detroit rock. And, you know, the uh, person, big personality bands seem to... Uh, and you know what? A lot of those bands um, are still successful today because they had these this guys that could not sit down and behave. You know, they had Iggy, they had Alice Cooper, they <laughs> right. had Ted Nugent swinging from the loincloth. You know, and yep. uh, so they always brought a show, and it's and it was really good. And it it kind of uh, reinforces my mantra that uh, rock and roll is better than music. <laughs> right. That's I mean, a, that's a great line. Now, actually, it's it's not original. There was a music store in Ann Arbor that had uh, that on a t shirt. I was going to say I, that. I said, that's a, a keeper. That'd be a great t shirt. Yeah. I think but it was called Al Nally Music. I want to give credit where credit's due. <laughs> There's something more to that, though, too. It's um, it's an attitude. Is what exactly, yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah, and it was, you know, 18 and uh, and just, you know, going wild a little bit, and it was just the wilder, more extreme side of rock, but, boy, was it entertaining. Right. You know? Who gave you the uh, moniker Kid, Kid costume? Arthur. Arthur did that. You know, and uh, I didn't want it because I knew that, it, you know, I was 27, and I think when I hired in there, and I knew that was not going to be long for the world, and it didn't right, seem right. like it had a long-term, uh, you know, validity to it. But uh, the thing about it with Arthur is if he's, he starts needling you on something, and and then you say, hey, man, like, don't do that, he's going to do it twice as much. I learned that. You know, and I, I that's when I learned that one, too. So, uh, <laughs> you know, welcome to the club. Right, exactly. Um, in 19, I think, it was it 81 that Wheels came on the air? Uh, they came out in 1980. Okay. And uh, what happened was when they came out in the, the August of 80, uh, Riff was just, you know, killing everybody. And I was at ABX, you know, and we were getting killed by Riff. Then Wheels came on, and they were commercial-free, but they weren't even playing the Jay Giles band, and somehow they still managed to beat Riff because they had that commercial-free period in there. But that really shook things up, and that's when Tom Bender uh, left Riff, uh, and uh, Fred Jacobs came in earlier the next year because Riff, uh, ABC doesn't like being a runner-up you know so they they will do whatever you know you just call there they'll send in another new york send me another bushel of cash for uh buying a tv schedule remember uh when radio stations actually advertise on oh, television sure. and having channel seven right across the driveway on the in the same complex Owning there the same the yeah same radio they were both station, owned yeah. and operated by abc uh you know, um, we always had TV campaigns. I mean, we had the real Dick the Bruiser one year, right? In, in a riff uh, commercial, and then uh, Rodney Dangerfield was in it one I year. That. You know, yeah. we had the heavy hitter stuff. You know, it was uh, really kind of uh, cool and special. To um, and the Kelly Harmon talking mouth was uh, sure. famous. Uh, that came out in '79. It had a huge impact. They recut it in '81. They put me in that one. But for some reason, if you go look for YouTube, they can find the original. The uh, the second one that ran in 81, 82 doesn't seem to come up as often. Not as often, but they still, I still you comes seen up. It? Yeah, okay. I saw it recently. All right, good. It's good. good to know. <laughs> and then, of course, Riff did that later with Karen Newman. Yeah, and yeah. just kind of recreated it. Coming up. 
You um, you became pretty good friends with Aerosmith, didn't I you? I kind of met those guys who dumb luck uh, back at the Michigan Palace. You know, my friends were uh, working there, and, um, you know, it just was Steve Glass production, and it was around 74. I think it was at the Allen Park Ice Arena. They had moved uh, over to there by then. It was, uh, I don't know if the Palace was available that uh, that time. Oh, they were rehearsing at the Palace for the gig out at uh, in Allen Park. That's what it was. But they used the palace, to, you know, during so maybe on the Thursday before the Saturday mm. gig to, to, you know, get some of the cobwebs out. Oh, Detroit was always uh, important, and that was a good year for them because they played there. And then the next time they came back, it was uh, Friday the thirteenth of September, a uh, day that I'll remember because a guy kind of rear-ended me on uh, Adams Road, slight fender bender on the way to the gig. Uh, but Aerosmith uh, headlined Pine Up, and that mm. was like a real big deal In because '74, yeah. Is the history of WRIF the podcast? Riff rocks, baby. Um, you were music director for Riff in 1991. Yeah, and that's a very interesting and pivotal time. It was music. again, once again, just uh, dumb luck, you know, yeah. because uh, the the music was kind of changing again. <clears throat> this time, it was kind of going a little bit way. Uh, away from hair bands and uh which actually that that was a really fun period when you think about it and then the, the grunge stuff came out much more of a darker feel i remember talking to joe scroy the uh, owner over at the ritz and he would book a lot of these bands and he goes boy you know i i just don't like this new stuff it's it's kind of dark it's got a like a i go yeah it does have a different feel whereas you know a couple of years before, it was David Lee Roth. It was crew going, girls, girls, girls. Yeah. Uh, and so it, it was actually, uh, there was some really, and all those guys could play their butts off. Yeah, you know? big time. I mean, a lot of those metal bands were, uh, you know, just really tally. You could get all over the guitar. That was the year of the pointy guitar. And, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, you know. But by the time 1992 got here and Smells Like Teen Spirit came out, yeah. it was 80, like the, the bands it were like. It played out. Yeah, it played Once out. Once Firehouse showed up, it was over. Right, exactly. That was it. Trickster. <laughs> yeah, and you get like to the that. point where you get those bands that are maybe third or fourth down on the tier from the really good ones that created it. And, you know, Guns N' Roses was, was oh, king yeah. of the world. And they were great. I saw them a bunch of times because uh, they, uh, they got on that Aerosmith uh, permanent vacation tour. And uh, they were both on Geffen Records, so uh, they were they dragged them out. So I saw when I go see Aerosmith uh, out, outside of Detroit, um, we saw G and R, uh, and you know they were definitely uh, you know keeping that tradition going. And, and I thought for sure that they would just be the next Aerosmith, but I they decided too. they they did have an appetite for destruction did. now, didn't they? <laughs> good one. Yeah, you. Um you became pretty good friends with Aerosmith, didn't I you? I kind of met those guys who dumb luck uh, back at the Michigan Palace. You know, my friends were uh, working there, and, um, you know, it just was Steve Glass production, and it was around 74. I think it was at the Allen Park Ice Arena. They had moved uh, over to there by then. It was, uh, I don't know if the Palace was available that uh, that time. Oh, they were rehearsing at the Palace for the gig out at uh, in Allen Park. That's what it was. But they used the palace, to, you know, during so maybe on the Thursday before the Saturday mm. gig to, to, you know, get some of the cobwebs out. Oh, Detroit was always uh, important, and that was a good year for them because they played there. And then the next time they came back, it was uh, Friday the thirteenth of September, a uh, day that I'll remember because a guy kind of rear-ended me on uh, Adams Road, slight fender bender on the way to the gig. Uh, but Aerosmith uh, headlined Pine Up, and that mm. was like a real big deal in '74. Yeah. 
So, you know, that was when the second album was out. Train kept her rolling and same yeah. old song and dance and Lord of the Thighs and mm, great Spaced album. and Seasons of Weather and the whole deal. Um, so that was a big deal there, the September 13th. And then they went away and then they came back the Wednesday before Thanksgiving and they headlined Kobo. Wow. And headlining Kobo was the top of the pops then. Right. You either had to be one of the heroes of Woodstock or one of the big English bands or. Grand Funk Railroad. That was about, you know, I mean, Seeger wasn't playing Kobo back then. Wow. You know, it was pretty that. Was so, Ted? I mean, you had to be, uh, he probably, yeah. He, I think Ted may have even played Kobo like in 67. He was on some show when they had those, like, rock and roll reviews oh, yeah. where each band would go up and play about 20 minutes. I think he was on something uh, where maybe even the Supremes might have even been on it or so, or maybe in 68 because Journey, the Center of Mind, became a hit. Mm-hmm. I think that he had done some, because, I mean, Ted was playing, Ted was big early. He was. You know, yeah. in, in, in a major way. So And uh, Ted and Aerosmith. They would. It seems like they're on the same bill quite a bit. They were. They had similar management for a while. That Lieber Krebs, uh, and, and you know, stylistic. If you liked one, you liked the other one. Oh, I mean, sure. Because it was. Uh, you know, I mean, Ted was a better guitar player than Joe or uh, or Brad at the time, and it had been for five years before those guys showed up. But uh, you know, he was. Uh, you know. Really good at ex- example of the irrational exuberance of Detroit stuff as well. <laughs> For sure. But uh, that uh, journey to the center of the mind just... Um you know, feedback was real early, and he was a pioneer in that stuff. Yeah, for sure. And well, and I think he fed off a lot too. Well, they were kind of coming up at the same time, the MC5, and that yeah. was just pure. And, and McCarty, he always talks about McCarty a lot, though. Yeah, he, he had seen McCarty on the Detroit Wheels days, and uh, you know, different places. And and whenever I talk to him, he's, he's uh, always held Jim McCarty in real high esteem. Yeah, you mentioned that you play guitar, um, and you've Sometimes. had a chance to play with a lot of people, though, right? Just happened to well, not none of the big platinum artists or anything, but a lot of the bar bands and stuff around. Yeah, you know, uh, I just started to get good at uh, you know, tell me what couple songs we're going to do the day after tomorrow, and I'll go home and uh, you know, if I get stuck somewhere, I'll call you. Where's that bridge? Oh, that's an okay. Oh, that goes to the oh, you, I stay on that. Okay, good, I got it. Yeah, yeah. You know, and just uh, it's real key is to picking the songs you know you can handle. Now, uh, do you play golf? Uh, a little bit. Okay. Well, a similar story. Uh, it would be like the following. Uh, you're playing a golf course, and you know that hole number eight, that thing always kicks my ass. I never do well on hole number eight, you know? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to skip number eight, and I'm going to play number nine twice. Uh-huh. You know, So, you know, basically what you do in music is you find the ones that are really you can in, play. in your wheelhouse. It's yeah, right yeah, over yeah. the middle of the plate. and. Yeah. Uh, and it's key when you're not in a real band and you're just going up there and doing Didn't that I stuff. Didn't I read, though, that you played with Rob Tyner? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I did a benefit after uh, Desert Storm, and it was for the troops. We did it over at the uh, Ritz in Roseville. Okay. And uh, I was getting all these guys. I put together just a, it was a loose jam. I just called all my friends and because uh, I had been doing the, the bar circuit like crazy back then. And we're doing this thing, and the money we raise is going to the USO, and uh, blah, 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 blah. And uh, I called Ron <laughs> Tyner up, because uh, he had come up on my show uh, in 1988. It was the 20th anniversary of the recording of Kick Out the Jams. Uh, and he took over the, radio, the the show for like two hours. We did all kinds of stuff. Talked about the older stuff. Played some of the newer stuff he had going on with that band uh, that became Weapons. Mm. Uh, Joey Gatos and... Uh, you know, Fred Schmidt and those guys, uh, they'd been in a few different, Muggsy, they, they'd been in a several bands. 
Um, so it was a pretty good unit that was backing him up. So Rob is like, uh, Steve, I'd be honored to blah, 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 support the truth. <laughs> I'm getting all excited. Just, you know, he's almost coming through the phone as I'm talking to him. Kind of like Nugent does that too. You know, it kind of you get kind of swept up in it. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he came out, and it was really just a loose jam. It's like, well, what are we going to do? <clears throat> and he goes, well, how about like you know, Motor City's burning and uh, back in the USA. And I said, uh, okay, Motor City's burning. And it was but Robert Gillespie, Bruce Meekin, who's played in Flash Cahan and uh, several other bands. And now he's, he's in Planet of Fun forever. Yeah. And uh, Gillespie and you know, the two pros and me. And uh, but I'm but I'm in charge, <laughs> so it's good to be the king. Nice. So uh, Bruce goes, uh, you know, I'll play bass, Steve. You just go ahead and uh, whatever, because bass players you have to kind of show up. You know, you have to be pretty steady. Yeah, you do. And uh, that ain't me. Uh, so uh, like Tom Hamilton once said, he goes, uh, bass playing is like uh, hotel housekeeping. You only notice it when when it's done poorly. Right. You know. So, <laughs> That's uh, funny. That's so uh, we. Uh, Basically, I said, I can probably bluff the leads. It's, it's in the key of E for Motor City's Burning, right? And the other one is like kind of a Chuck Berry standard thing, too. So, um, yeah, it was uh, Gillespie and I on guitar, and uh, and Tyner Swung nice. was uh, was singing. And while he's singing, you know how when a bat goes by at dusk, you see that little, like, flash of a phantom? Sure. I'm up there <laughs> playing, and the lights are on. And it's, whew, something kind of goes by, and, I'm, and then it happens again. I forgot, and this guy's like swinging that like a mace, uh, that weapon of you know, the, the Rob Tyner meets Roger Daltrey sway. And you know, and so I was like, note to self, uh, you know, step back, yeah, just bind him where you are because there's uh, incoming with this guy. It was cool as heck, but it was kind of a fun moment, you know, right? And, and it was really funny because I played like way over my head. It was just one of those, uh, you know, it looks like a strollite night, you know, like Ray, Ray Euler was a typical really bad Detroit Tiger in uh, 68 series. In fact, they sat him down because he had like a 187 batting average. They had to shuffle the whole lineup around. But it'd be like if uh, I was Ray Euler and I went, uh, you know, three for four with a home run and a double and four RBIs or something that day. It was just one of those. I was so excited to be playing with him. I got I got all over it. I had my own axe, which really makes a huge difference. Right. Too. You know, I'm always amazed by you, Steve. Your memory you, like you remember details, dates. Well, some of that stuff is pretty vivid, you know, at the time. But you know, the, I think it maybe has to do with being young. Uh, I don't remember as much of the stuff recently, but I haven't been out doing that crazy stuff like I used to all the time either. Right. But uh, you know, some of that stuff was pretty noteworthy. And, be, and Rob passed away about six months after that. And there is somebody had a cassette somewhere, and uh, it's very poorly recorded. I don't know how they did, but the. It's definitely uh, us doing that song because I only had about three or four really uh, pet uh, like speed licks, maybe maybe two and a half. <laughs> right. So I recognized that one. It's like, oh yeah, guys, I always go to that one. I was one I could play real fast, and it, you know it looks good. But if you get like into the third or fourth song, uh, you know you're right. Kinda, you're yeah, then the they're re- done it. Recycling, you know. <laughs> right. <laughs> but uh, you know it looks good when you hit them with it quick, and then you know no one to get get off the stage. You um, changed topics a little bit. You um, had a great show on the riff called Sonic Rendezvous. Yeah, talk about that. Well, that was the one that Rob came up on as well, Tyner. But uh, I started uh, at ABX on Sunday nights. What happened was uh, it was called Dangerous Exposure, and uh, what happened was. Um, when we changed program directors, we had a lot of this new cutting-edge stuff sprinkled in throughout the broadcast day. Normal rotation. 
we weren't getting credit for it. There was like this group, Free Radio Now, and you guys know, you know, we play that, some, some band that they liked, and then play like Journey or something. So it wasn't like really a landing with the listeners. It hadn't, you know, it wasn't sticking. Hmm. So uh, the new program director wanted to get rid of a lot of that stuff anyways. I said, tell you what, why don't we just put it where they can find it every Sunday night, 8 to 10. Then you can just tune in and boom, you're going to find nothing but that there. Yeah, great idea. And, you know, some of these ones that are a little too uh, ahead of their time to be uh, on regular rotation at the radio station, you know, you can even tell the labels, hey, we're playing it on this Sunday night thing. And And what uh, are some of the bands that might be in that level at that time? Let's see. Anything from the Joe Perry project to uh, a lot of the, the the wave stuff that was coming out. Mostly, it was a lot of the stuff that was coming out on MTV, and uh, you know the early that whole change in music. Uh, and they really in Detroit wasn't. I don't, I don't know if it's they weren't quite as up to we weren't quite like where LA was when it came to that kind of stuff. You know, we were more of our rock and you know we right. want our meat rock and roll. Yeah, big guitars. and. Uh, so that was a good place for a lot of that stuff. You know, you could put it on uh, a lot of the early MT. Like, you know, we had that Lost 80s Live uh, show at OMC. Uh, we've had a couple of years. It'd be a lot of bands in that genre. Uh, of course, all things Bowie, Stooges. You know, I, I, I still was able to lay on and lean on all the Detroit stuff, though, just because it was it was kind of, a you know, a place for that stuff. Yeah. So I didn't... <clears throat> It wasn't really like a totally new wave show because it was the Steve Costian Detroit getting away with it interpretation of that. <laughs> right. Somewhat. Tell me about your relationship with Bob Seger. I don't know Bob that well. Um, by the time I got into radio, he had already done Live Bullet, and then he became like, you know, super huge. The uh, guys like Calvert Johnson, Savelli, and Penhollow got to know him a little bit uh, better. But I've had many encounters with him over the years, uh, you know, socially and, uh, you know, not just at his concerts and other, other things. And he's always been, like, great. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, he's, he's kind of... Dennis Frawley told me something when I first started at ABX. He said, because we used to do those, like, in-store appearances with artists sometimes, like, at Peaches Records or something, or Harmony House. Come right. out and meet so-and-so, and he'll sign your, you know, buy his new album, he'll sign it for you. That kind of, It was regularly done, you know, because we were all young and, mm-hmm. you know, selling records and stuff. And Dennis told me, he said, you know, Bob doesn't really enjoy these things that much, you know. He's, he gets a little uncomfortable, you know, doing the the accolades and stuff. And he goes, on the other hand, Ted can't live without it. <laughs> and I said, well, that's okay. You need right. both kinds, you know, and, and you know, most Both rock stars uh, probably would be would be like Ted or, or, or you so. know or Mick or Iggy or well, David well. Lee Roth or something. I mean, you know, and you got to have that aspect, you know, that performance gene. But uh, yeah. you know, Bob was never really uh, like heavy in that. But he was such a good songwriter and mm-hmm. you know a little more of an introspective guy. But uh, I mean, I've chatted him up for hours. I mean, I remember one of one of the uh, Penhallow weddings. I think it was number. I think it was number fourteen. I'm not sure, but uh, you know, we ended up hanging out for like for a couple hours as it got late, and then things got a little looser, and uh, and, and other things. We had some mutual friends, so we'd end up at some parties together. Yeah. And he was always a great guy. Yeah. Who are some of your favorite interviews? You've interviewed a lot of. People. Yeah, yeah. Let me think. One of my best ones was um, that I was really proud of was uh, Bowie. Mm. Um, what year? It was around ninety ish. He was playing at the uh, at the palace, I think, or he was, yeah, yeah, he had to be playing at the palace. I don't think he ever did DTE um, or Pine Out. 
and it was supposed to be on Arthur's show at around quarter, about 5.30, and it was getting kind of uh, late, and he hadn't gone on, and Art wasn't as big a Bowie fan as I was anyways, you know, if it had been, I don't know, the Jefferson Airplane or something, he would have probably been more better suited for it. So it ran late, and I ended up being on the radio. It was after 6 o'clock. Mm-hmm. As it got close to 6, I can't remember where the PD was. Go, why don't you go in there and, help, and do it with Arthur, you know. Then Arthur just said, I don't want to do it anyway. I'm off there. I'm going home. <laughs> so it was great. So I got him, and it was live on the on the telephone, you know, back in those days. And it was 15 minutes long. Which is and, a long Afternoon drive, pretty yeah. much. It was like, I don't know, 10 after 6 till about uh, uh, 6.25 or whatever the heck it was. But uh, it was pretty cool because, uh, you know, I started off talking a little bit about them seeing him in Masonic when the first uh, tour came, and then, mm-hmm. you know, and then all of a sudden you must have found a quarter on the street because all of a sudden you have these these big costumes and all this stuff the next time around. Oh, yes, that, that <laughs> you saw that thing. That was a Japanese designer. So-and-so, so-and-so did that outfit for me. So he kind of knew that, okay, this guy is actually uh, you know, a little a familiar with yeah. some of my work, which is kind of neat. We got into all kinds of stuff. We talked about uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan because mm-hmm. uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan was... Um, in town the, the same night. I think he was playing with... Royal Oak Music Theater? Perhaps, or yeah, he, he may have been something. Uh, but, oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, he's actually uh, at a different venue uh, this evening. We got into that, and then we got into the whole uh, soupy sales, because, um, uh, you know, with the Detroit connection, because Hunt and Tony Sales uh, had done some stuff with... Uh, you know, David Bowie with his, uh, that other project, was that Tin Machine, I think it was called? Or oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, it, somehow I was able to, I was able to worm that in there. Great and, and then I also, uh, so you're playing at the Palace, the home of the uh, world champion Detroit Pistons. Mm-hmm. Oh, great. You know, so, I mean, I, I really was pleased being just live on the radio. I didn't have notes or anything, but I just, wow. I was so anxious to talk to the guy that I had no problem uh, having stuff to talk to right, him about. And you're familiar. Totally familiar. Yeah, it yeah. was real easy. It'd just that's be like cool. sitting down, hey, what about that? Right. And um, that's, if you go to my uh, SoundCloud page, you'll find one interview up there because I put it up the day uh, he passed away. I, and that took me like three hours to figure out how to do that. <laughs> but So that's the only one up there. But uh, I had a really good one with uh, Robert Plant. Uh, um, on the, I had a couple with Roger Daltrey, uh, Ringo, Ronnie Wood, yeah. uh, all the Aerosmith guys a bunch of times. Uh, Ted and Peter Wolf back-to-back one New Year's Eve when they were uh, Wolf was playing the Ritz, the Ritz and Ted yep. was doing the Whiplash. Yeah. I was filling in for Arthur because he never worked the holidays. Mm-hmm. So I had them like a half hour apart, and that was just pure radio adrenaline. You know? <laughs> right. I was like, get out so the phone awesome. with this guy. I got on an hour, and I got that big show with the Ritz happening tonight with Wolf, and now uh, joining me on and here's it. So that was real cool. <laughs> it, it, they can be really good. It's yeah. a lot of fun. You know? It is. Uh, Brian Ferry from Roxy Music. Uh, you know, I'm probably forgetting most of them, but... <clears throat> what bands did you have come in the studio and jam? Well, let's see. Uh, not directly jamming on my show, but when I got off, we did Rockline from uh, oh, yeah. from Riff one year and uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan. Wow. And, and Mike Mayer's in a panic, our program director. He needs to have a, a certain kind of a guitar amplifier, and uh, I'm calling these music stores, and uh, I said... Hold on a sec, Mike. So let me call Randy Vaughn. You know, because what he wanted was more of an authentic tubes, mm. uh, you know, tube-powered uh, kind of blues amp. And I said, I'm sure Randy's got it. And so you, you found know, it. He, he, and, and, and Randy, uh, you know, I said, I got one, but, you know, here's, here's my stipulation. I get to come over 
while you're doing the show, and I'll, I'll bring my amp over and I get to sit, you know, yep. in, in riff, you know, while that's going on. Meet the guy, blah, blah, hey, no problem, come on over. Coming up. In 2011, you had an awesome honor um, to be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yeah, yeah. That just blow your mind. It did. Actually, they called me. I got some email at the station I was at at the time, and it was some guy. I can't remember his name, but he had like an Italian last name. My name is so-and-so. You may have heard. I used to work for Album Network. I'm currently helping the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame uh, put together some stuff. They're going to update their... Uh, you know, rock on the radio uh, kind of thing and uh, add some jocks. You have been jocks. Squeeze me? Baking powder? You have blah, 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 blah. And so uh, I was like, oh, this is kind of cool. Like, uh, is this legitimate or anything? So I had a couple of friends, uh, and they both kind of knew Kramer a little bit, so they kind of checked him out. And a few days later, he came back, and uh, and Howard and Leslie goes, yeah, yeah, it's happening. He goes, I just want you to know, you know, because I knew you before you got into radio. I never thought you'd make it. This is the History of 101 WRIF, the podcast. All right, this is 101 FM WRIF, Detroit's home of rock and roll. If I press a couple of buttons here, joining me on the line should be... Hi. It is. It's David Bowie. Good early evening, Steve. How are you? Legendary personalities from Detroit's iconic WRIF. And then you had the Let's Dance album, and you found some guy under a rock down in Texas. Yeah, Stevie Ray Vaughan. Uh-huh. Actually, I found him high up on a rock in Switzerland. Is that actually where I found him? Is that right? He was playing one night down at a, a jazz club, jazz and blues club in uh, Montreux in Switzerland, and I was fortunate enough to be there. Uh, I thought, gee, this kid is a whiz. This kid is great. With Mike Staff and our special guest, Steve Costan. He will be in town uh, this weekend as well. Is he really? With Joe Cocker at Pine Knob. Oh, that's fantastic. So it's all kind of uh, happening here all at once there. Are we, are we there at exactly the same time, I wonder? Yeah, you're, you're Friday, Sunday, and Monday. Oh, and, dynamite. And on your off day, he's playing with Joe Cocker. Oh, that is brilliant. That, that's fantastic. The History of WRAF Podcast is brought to you by the Spex Howard School of Media Arts. Do you have uh, tapes of most of your interviews? Probably uh, more than half. Wow, that's great. That's you know, you really just remember good. to pop that little cassette yep. in there where we had the skimmer. And uh, I'm just trying to think if there was any other... Uh, yeah, the musical performance thing isn't coming to me right away. Okay. So, but but I've had some other people. Have you had that. some uh, bad interviews that kind of went south? I had one that was just... Uh, Really, just made me feel uncomfortable. <laughs> really, yeah. do tell. <laughs> now, now, he, now he's he's no longer with us. But I mean, since that happens, unfortunately, to a lot of our artists nowadays, uh, yeah, sure. Lou Reed. Mm. Um, Lou Reed comes in. I'm kind of I'm excited because I knew the Velvet Underground stuff from about seventy one, seventy, and uh, but now he this is nineteen eighty, and now that's like. To him, it's like long gone. It was like when I was interviewing Plant. They said, "Don't ask him about Zeppelin." Mm. It was similar to that, but they didn't give me the "Don't ask him about rules" before the interview. So oh. I start I started dwelling a little bit too much on the past, and he wanted to push his uh, current album, which I think was called Street Hassle, and uh, he became uh, a little. Um, you could tell he was being irritated. And then the thing, the straw that broke the camel's back was we were talking about Mitch Ryder. And he said, you know, Mitch Ryder did a great version of rock and roll, you know, my song. We really love that version. I said, oh, he, Mitch has got a new uh, album out. You know, there's a song called War. Would you like to hear it? And he's like, yeah. So this is all live in the radio. So 
So I put the thing up on, you know, I cue it up and it's playing. It's, and it's about a seven-minute song. About 90 seconds into it, he goes, this is terrible. Um, you know, off mic, of course. Oh. You know, how, how long is this? And I go, well, it's, it's seven minutes. Take it off. I said, what? You know, take it off. It's like, I, I really can't. The, the, a couple of years before, we had a mutual <laughs> friend at, uh, who lived down on Orchard Lake and who knew Mitch Ryder. And, and the only time I ever got up on water skis, he was in the boat. Mitch was in the boat. He was out hanging with my friend Larry. And uh, and, and so I kind of knew him through other people and stuff. And plus, it's Detroit, and it's Mitch Ryder. Right, like, you don't do that. It's like, look, I, I'm not, I'm not going to do it. And, and he was surprised. I just I, I just held the line. Wow. I made him sit through the whole thing. <laughs> so you nervously kind of chit-chatted with him for And then after minutes. that, it was just like one-word answers. We wrapped it up, and he was a little ticked off. Uh-huh. And I was just you know, kind of sweaty. You get that feeling around there. And then later, he had said something to uh, the record person, Steve Costan's Time Machine of Rock and Roll or something, because I hadn't, you know, I wasn't uh-huh. pushing the other one, and that one was very uncomfortable, and I was kind of uh, bummed out because I really enjoyed his work, but uh, that was not a very positive radio experience. <laughs> right. In 2011, you had an awesome honor um, to be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yeah, yeah. That just blow your mind. It did. Actually, they called me, I got some email at the station I was at at the time, and it was some guy, I can't remember his name, but he had like an Italian last name. My name is so-and-so. You may have heard, I used to work for Album Network. I'm currently helping the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame uh, put together some stuff. They're going to update their, uh, you know, rock on the radio uh, kind of thing and uh, add some jocks. You have been, jo- excuse, excuse me, baking powder? You have blah, 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 blah. And so... Uh, I was like, oh, this is kind of cool. I got, is this a legitimate or anything? So I had a couple of friends uh, that uh, I thought might be able to help me out. Uh, Gary Graff, because mm-hmm. uh, he was uh, he, familiar with Howard Kramer, was the guy who was who made the choice. And I guess he knew him because Howard was originally from Southfield or something. Oh, he was a curator of the Rock and Roll Hall of yeah, Fame. Yeah, back yeah. then. And I asked him and I asked Howard Lesnick. Uh, and they both kind of knew Kramer a little bit, so they kind of checked him out. And a few days later, he came back, and uh, and Howard and Lesnick goes, yeah, yeah, it's happening. He goes, I just want you to know, you know, because I knew you before you got into radio. I never thought you'd make it. <laughs> Gee, thanks a lot, Howard. I appreciate <laughs> it. At least you're still consistent, you know. <laughs> thanks for your support. All the way through, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I'm sure you've been down there, and you've seen the, you've seen it. Well, the, they decided, they told me you can't tell anybody. Because uh, we're remodeling the whole place, we're going to move the radio thing from the fourth you know, upstairs down to the thing. We're really, really, you know, revamping. The, it's time for a refresh for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, so it's going to mm-hmm. take a little while. Well, well, a few months. It took like about six months for them to do it. Wow. So I'm just kind of sitting on, biting my tongue the whole time, knowing that I'm getting in and really trying to and honoring the fact that I'm not going to blab it just because right. I don't want to blow it. Right. And uh, <laughs> That's motivation. Then the uh, the next fun phase, which was kind of fun, was, uh, okay, we need an audio clip because basically uh, what you do is you go in, there's a kiosk, and there's four kiosks, and then you hit the, uh, there's a map of the United States, and you hit the Midwest, then Detroit, then pick a decade, and then here's the names across there, and you, you push on the name, then you, my bio will come up, and then... There's headphones, and you can listen to, uh, you know, your career boiled down in three minutes. So he said, you know, 
two and a half to three minutes. We, we here's a typical, uh, you know, research speak. We find that the average, uh, you know, person gets bored after about two and a half to three minutes. So limit your tape to that. Long. What if I'm talking to David Bowie and Robert Plant? You know, right. I mean, we can, so uh, so I set a million in. It was about seven some minutes long. Rejected, sent back. <laughs> You know, it was via email, so it wasn't like I had to, like, rap and go through. Right. So then I tried, I cut it down to about five. No, you know, came back again. Darn, you know, because I had a couple of them in there. So I, I cut it back, to, and, I, and so it eventually, you know, it boiled down to that. But one thing I'm really proud of is uh, I didn't, uh, I, I used this thing from uh, CSX to start it off, because that's where I was at the time, and I had this feature called Michigan Mondays, you know, using the Bob Eufer pronunciation, Michigan right. instead of Michigan. Right. But... Uh, <laughs> I started off with, uh, okay, we're going to start off Michigan Monday, blah, 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 this, that. And here's the guy, let's face it, they didn't send a, sell a ton of tickets. They didn't sell a ton of albums. But, hey, he saved a fortune on shirts. Ba-wang, wow, wow. Iggy and the Stooges on da-da-da-da uh, on WCSX. That was always, and that kicks it off. So that nice. was, uh, I'm glad I did that. You know, I'm glad I never took myself too, too seriously. Right. It's got to be a serious interview. Yeah, it might be uh Interviewing the uh, you know lieutenant governor of the state of Michigan next, it was like, nah. I always kept the rock and roll thing, and, right? Rock and roll. You know, is not if, I'm, if I'm un, yeah, if I'm unsuited for that stuff, so be it. You know, <laughs> I knew that when I was twelve. What do you suppose it is about Detroit that um, made it so what it was? Yeah. Well, from a rock perspective, Rob Tyner uh, really. Uh, credits a lot of the Motown and he says, you know, just the egos, you know, the fact that these guys showed up with a show, uh, made us mm. all, uh, me and all my peers, uh, they really showed us how it can be done. You know, you go up there and give a performance, not just, uh, sit around and, and, and just play. Yeah. And like a friend of mine who said he went and saw the, the Steely Dan guys about 12 years ago or something. He said the band comes out and plays, uh, you know, a little bit before, and then they, they come walking out, but uh, I can't remember which one of the, if it was Becker or Vega, he came walking out dressed like the guy that shows up at your office to fix the Xerox machine. He goes, you know, for crying out loud, you know, like, go go, you know, go buy a pair of smart trousers or, right. or at least some kind of cool shirt and right, uh, you right. know, make it, you know. So so they really were impressed by that, that whole uh, high level of energy and professionalism and visual that the Motown provided, because they had a little bit of that choreography going, and then, you know, MC5 and all of our really favorite bands really um, exemplified, uh, you know, putting on the, the show part of the show. They did, yeah, for sure. Um, what is it about Riff, you think, that resonated with Detroit? Well, they had competition, so it wasn't like they completely owned it all the time. There was, uh, you know, ABX and W4 were playing stuff a little bit uh, ahead of Riff. Riff was kind of like the big popular if it if it did well on those stations a couple weeks later riff would play it mm-hmm. um but boy they always had the the high ground i guess you could call it um or the inside track the high ground the mm-hmm. advantage they had that monster signal that uh was far superior to the other two stations and uh with abc owned and operated they were always able to really dig deep uh promotionally uh and and keep the station out front. Um, they were quite successful. They had like four or five different stations around the country. ABC did. We're all kind of in that thing, and they were considered like the the, the Clipper class, the uh, the upper echelon mm-hmm. uh, nationally. Just the the company itself was 
they really played to win and and they really believed in, in investing the talent. Look what happened. You know, they assembled that dream team at Riff around uh, 79 to 81. Yep. I, I say 81 because that was like the last piece that was needed. <laughs> After wheels shut up, they needed one more. But, um, you know, they got us these people from different stations, put them all together. At the same time, across the driveway, Channel 7 was doing the same thing. Mm. They got John Kelly and Marilyn Turner from Channel 2. They got so-and-so from 4. And they had the thing, we got the people you wanted. They the assembled. The crop, yeah, so that was a, a company philosophy that, uh, that you know, we're going to really invest in, in the top talent. And uh, it worked. It did work. Yeah. It worked big time. Um, any other great stories about Riff? Time at Riff? Uh, I mean, there was a lot of great stories. Uh and a lot of great times. Let me think if there's a, well, I don't know, even doing the, one of the most fun things I did was not really rock and roll. I was still at Riff was uh, when I got to drive in the uh, celebrity races oh, yeah. at the Detroit Grand Prix. You know, just because when do you get to do that? And, you know, not get in trouble. And uh, they, uh, you <laughs> know, sent me to some r- racing school uh, out in uh, Connecticut. Uh, Lime Rock was the name of the track, Skip Barber. Mm. And we did that. And then, you know, you get kind of like, you know, good enough for that. And it was Eric Smith from Channel 7 was in it. And uh, s- some other, fo- oh, Frank Beard from ZZ Top was in it that first year. Because nice. ZZ was playing two shows at the Palace. I don't know when the guy slept, but right. uh, I remember that, and a buddy yeah. of mine was drum teching for him. So wow. uh, we uh, got to know Frank a little bit and went out and saw the Sunday show. But just the whole thing about uh, you know being able to hang out with those guys and uh, that was still when Mario Andretti was the Arrivederci Mario uh, mm. tour in '94 was his last season and. And Paul Newman's riding by on a little moped, and it was just a backstage glimpse into something that I had never uh, really seen, seen before. before. And, and music wasn't boring or anything like that, uh, but but it was just <laughs> neat to look at. I mean, it was race cars yeah. in Detroit, right? You know, all of a sudden I'm putting on the helmet and I'm walking around with a racing suit on, That's and cool. getting interviewed by Drew and Mike. You know, and I was on the station, <laughs> and then uh, Emerson Fittipaldi and, and uh, Dennis Archer were uh, in the pace car, and I'm. We're driving around following them. You already started. I, I can't believe I'm doing this. <laughs> yeah, you know, the stuff. It was great. That's you know, awesome. So that was one highlight moment. And uh, another one was uh, getting on the stage at the Silverdome uh, a couple minutes before Van Halen went on for the uh, Monsters of Rock. Wow. That was uh, and just, doing just a you know, the feel yeah. and the power. Yo, you know, I mean, you've been on stage. You know, I mean, it's how, you sound big when you're at the Ritz or at Harpo's. Right. And, of course, if you get out of somewhere bigger, I mean, I was just out at Shane Park the other night. It was great bringing those bands on with, you know, feeling that microphone. But, yeah. I mean, to do it at the Silverdome, that was insane. Well, and the weird thing about the Silverdome is, like, you could say, what's up, Detroit? But it takes a, a minute to get to them. Yeah. And then for their roar to come back, and you're like, is this thing on? Yeah, you got to be a little <laughs> deliberate when it comes to that kind of stuff and, and keep it simple. Yeah. You know, you can't get really conversational on something like that. It's <laughs> right, that's for sure. But, but I just remember being there, and, and then... And I'd been on a lot of stages, and, you know, a lot of times you can't see well out of the crowd because of the lights. Right. But at that one, it seemed like the crowd was out somewhere across the Grand Canyon uh, to me. I mean, yes. that stage went way out, and then it was just the void out yeah, there. That's awesome. It was cool, and we had uh, dropped off contest winners early that day. Mm. Uh, it was an all-day thing, and, and that new band, Kingdom Come, was just playing. And uh, so we wanted to see Kingdom Come for sure, but it was going to be like about a 90-degree sunny day. So Scott Brown, our... Uh, 
promotions director and I, and, you know, we took the listeners out there with a bus, but then we had an arrangement where uh, we got a car and we went over to uh, Dan and Kathy's house on Pontiac Lake mm. and uh, cranked beers on the boat nice. all afternoon <laughs> and kind of showered up and, and you know, got a second wind for the evening and came back and finished it off at Monsters wow. of Rock. That's a great day. It, it was. It was awesome. <laughs> it was in uh, 1988. You had mentioned uh, Drew and Mike. You were at Riff um, before Drew and Mike and during the explosion of Drew and Mike. Of course, it was Drew and Zip. Yeah. What did you think of the Drew and Zip show when they first got to Riff? Well, it, see, this is a strange deal because when uh, when they came in, we had just lost Ken Calvert to uh, Wheels. And the salespeople were walking around going, this is the end of the world, oh my God, you know, et cetera. And uh, I was going, well, you know, that's water under the bridge now. This is our new more, this is our quarterback now. We got to get behind this guy. So I hit it off pretty well with Drew. And, and I think he probably could have, he needed to like to have a couple of friends around. Right. Because he didn't know anyone in Detroit. Yeah, and everyone's yeah. going, oh man, we are screwed now. Who is it, you know? And, uh, so yeah, we went golfing. We did some stuff. I had them over to my house for a few parties and and things, and uh, and they were pretty good. Uh, the zip guy was pretty decent, but uh, he he was going through some uh, marital problems, and and he kind of like lo- just kind of lost focus, and uh, it, it didn't work out. And then uh, Mike Clark uh, right kind of slid right in time. there, yeah. Yeah, answer me. <laughs> right. And, uh, he and that just, thing just took yeah, off. Yeah, and I do Those think- talent guys, I mean, he kind of filled the the gap that George was kind of doing, the, you know, the buyer. I mean, he had the ability to bring that creative side, and then you have the semi-straight man, the, the jock, that's kind of really holding the whole thing together. Right. But, you know, you have the... Uh, you know, I, I give Doug Podell a lot of credit on that, too, because um, Drew had to play like four or five records uh, an hour. And Doug came in and said, hey, man, just be you. Do you. Don't worry about playing the music. And that's, cool. I think, it kind of opened up a little bit for him. Yeah, but they, they had already been kicking uh, morning butt. They, they broke through in uh, early 94. That's when uh, they uh, passed J.J. and uh, the morning crew. I was yep. still a riff. Yep. And, and all of a sudden, we were knocking off that legendary morning show. For sure. And that was uh, really cool. It was. It was a really... I mean, I mean, I love the, the uh, you know Jim and George, but you know they're on the other team now. And even if Magic Johnson and Isaiah Thomas used to go hang out after the game during the game, you know if he's dribbling by, I'm going to try right. and slap that ball oh, away from him. Of That's course, the name of the game, right? The home team. Yeah, <laughs> Steve, you're awesome. I really appreciate it. I got to say, you are um, you are the real deal. You are truly a rock um, fan for sure, but you know the music. You love the music. You're such a Detroit boy. I mean, you just personify a uh, cool rock radio DJ. So, Well, I hope people around here like it because uh, there's no way I'm going anywhere else. <laughs> and, you know, If I go somewhere else, it'll be not to do radio you know well, i mean that's this is where i belong it is it's where i you know started uh you know everything you know i started out as a child as uh <laughs> one comedian once said on one of his albums and uh it's just been the place to be and i've had a couple opportunities there's a couple of new york things uh uh one san diego and uh and I'm just glad that I stayed here. Well, me too. Yeah, me too. 40, 42 plus years. Yeah, I mean, know. going back a ways, and it's it's just been a great place to be a rock DJ. I mean, yeah. if you want to be a rock and roll DJ, and you, and you like the heavier guitar stuff, which I always have. I thought that was the uh, essence of rock. No uh, so this is the place to be, Detroit. Rock City, baby. Yeah, Detroit, Rock City. Thank you, Kid Costan. <laughs> that was fun. <laughs> Steve Costan. Thanks, buddy.
Next time. The best call letters in rock radio. In fact, I heard Howard Stern talking recently about there are no better call letters for a rock station than the Riff, W-R-I-F. And he's right. He is right. And you know who thought they were dumb? Who? You did? I said, (laughs) W-R-I-F? Are you serious? (laughs) Legendary personalities from Detroit's iconic W-R-I-F. With Mike Staff and our special guest, former program director Dick Kernan. Did you put together the riff, the whole riff thing? No. No, you weren't even thinking it. I don't deserve the credit for any of that. (laughs) That is funny. That was, but it was really funny because we were owned by ABC. And so uh, we had some money, honey. Mm-hmm. So WAVX, see you by, don't let the door hit you. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, so we, you know, just came on with uh, the new set of call letters, and uh, which turned out to be great. Which, because I'm a genius, I thought those are the dumbest call letters ever. <laughs> the history of WRAF podcast is brought to you by the Spex Howard School of Media Arts.